The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and this show was pre-recorded on March 3rd, 2017, and that's because I plan to attend the Prospector and Developer Conference in Toronto uh, next Tuesday. So, instead of the usual live show, today I'm going to be playing three very important interviews that I think should help you see why the equity market's recent bullish move is way out of touch with reality and that there is likely to be a huge day of reckoning that in fact may be just now getting underway. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, want to uh, encourage you to continue sending along your questions comments, criticisms, and praises to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Uh, we'd like to also thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Dynasert Inc., Golden Predator, Chilean Metals, Arvista Gold Corp., Novo Resources, Uranium Energy Corp., and RN Resources. Well, the gold price has been taking a bit of a hit lately, and that has impacted the prices of our junior mining shares fairly dramatically over the last couple of days. However, unless you buy the mainstream propaganda about the economy and that it is basically all right, in my view, you still have to remain very bullish on gold and gold shares. However, this decline is definitely a gut check. As this is being recorded on March 3rd, I will just tell you that Michael Oliver's views at the start of today is that gold should hold in the 1200, uh, 1210 to 1220 range. However, that floor increases, according to Michael's work, by $10 per week. And that's on his intermediate chart work. By the time uh, this airs on March 7th, we should have a better idea uh, as to whether or not uh, something more onerous is underway or whether Michael is right and we will see gold holding at the 1210 to 1220 level. One of my guests today was supposed to be Janet Lee Sheriff of Golden Predator. That's a sponsor and one of my favorite junior gold mining shares, one that I own personally. This is a company that is in the process of outlining a major gold deposit in the Yukon. Unfortunately, management could not come on the show today because they are doing a financing and legally they are not allowed to talk about the company until after the funding is completed. I expect we will have a guest from Golden Predator on our show in the near future after the quiet period is over uh, to get an update on this very exciting story. Well, I've titled today's show, Preparing and Profiting from Trump's Doomed Economics. I will be playing three interviews, as I noted on today's show that I think will help you see what kind of desperate condition the US economy is in and that not only is there nothing that Trump can do uh, to turn things around but that most of the economic policies he is espousing may, may well be very well intended but are likely to make things worse not better after our first commercial break David Stockman will explain why 20 trillion dollars of national debt is in fact making Trump's job of restoring America to uh, greatness mathematically as well as politically impossible unfortunately 
Your host subscribes to the Austrian School of Economics, as does David Stockman and financial journalists like John Tamney, who will talk momentarily about why Trump's policies on trade and monetary issues are ill-advised. While there is no doubt in my mind that Austrian economics is the economic school of thought that most closely identifies the world as it actually is, those of us in the Austrian school have often been way too bearish about the markets for way too long, and that has been extremely costly to me personally, I must uh, confess, as well as many other Austrian thinkers that I know. We often miss out on the boom times because we are waiting for the doom times. And so the last interview today will be Ronald Stofferly, an Austrian economist who has written a book titled Austrian School for Investors. In the interview conducted by Jeff Dice of the Mises Institute, Ronald will explain that Austrians do have an advantage over mainstream folks with regard to the very big picture. But he will give us some advice as to how we Austrians don't have to miss out on making money during the boom times as we wait for the inevitable doom caused by government interference in the markets. So to summarize uh, regarding today's show, after the first commercial break, David Stockman will talk about why, unfortunately, Trump's economic plan is destined to fail and why we are facing a huge economic and market crisis in the very near future. And during the last segment of today's show, Ronald Storfoley will explain why Austrian economics can be very helpful in identifying the impending crisis, but also allowing us to profit when the good times are with us. But before we go to the first break, I am going to play another interview conducted by Jeff Deist with the rarest of investment professionals, namely an Austrian school financial journalist named John Tammy. John will explain why most of Trump's policies have to do with trade and monetary policies are ill-advised and will likely hurt more than help an already very sick economy. I believe what John has to say is very important, so please take a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to Mises Weekend Show. I'm your host, Jeff Dice. We're very happy and pleased to be joined this morning, Inauguration Day Friday, I might add, uh, by John Tamney, a name I'm sure many of you know, but if you don't know, uh, you really ought to be reading and following him. John is the uh, editor of Real Clear Markets. He also writes quite a bit on political economy for Forbes magazine. He is a senior fellow at Reason. And he also wrote a book a couple of years that Regnery put out uh, that we carry in our own bookstore called Popular Economics, What the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James Can Teach You About Economics. And I think it was an attempt uh, to bring home some of these theoretical concepts uh, to, to real-world action. And with that, uh, we welcome John Tamney. How are you doing today, John? I'm great. Uh, thank you for having me on, Jeff. Well, it is Inauguration Day. I, I've seen you have written uh, a fair bit about both Trump and some of his cabinet picks. Uh, g- give us your overarching thoughts. What do you, what do you think of Trump pro and con? Uh, what I like about Trump is probably what many do. Uh, he is not like other politicians. I like that he kind of says what's on his mind. Uh, at the same time, I'm terrified by him. Uh, trade is the purpose of our work. Uh, to import is the reason that we get up and go to work every day. Uh, Trump wants to limit our ability. He's bought into this falsehood that's confused thinkers for years that somehow imports are what hurt us when, in fact, imports are the reward for all of our work. Um, it also terrifies me that he thinks you can devalue your way to prosperity. Um, devaluation is the biggest enemy prosperity has ever known simply because it's the biggest enemy of, of investment. And so I, I, I like the change. I don't like politicians in general, but it terrifies me. He could really be bad if he uh, gives in to his worst instincts. Do you think there's a difference fundamentally be- between his vision or view of, of global trade and markets and what Hillary's might have been? Um. Yes, I, I legitimately do. Now, I base this on the fact that her husband was a free trader, and I feel like she ultimately would have been uh, guided by some of his logic. Um, I think Hillary moved against free trade simply because she thought it was politically expedient. I think in Trump's case, when you look at his commentary, and you look at his commentary going back to the 80s, We're talking about someone still living in the 1980s who back then felt that Japan was the biggest threat to the United States 
and thinks China is today, I would make the argument that if Japan and China didn't exist, we'd have to invent them. So good have both those countries been for U.S. economic growth. So it concerns me. I think Hillary would have been more moderate um, had she been been elected. That's not that's not me giving a preference to her, but I think on trade she would have been better. Well, there's also the the areas of nationalism and, of course, war and peace. And, and as you well know, one knock on libertarians is that we're so focused on trade and economics and GDP. And, you know, we'd sell our grandmothers for a few more uh, points of prosperity. Uh, do you think Trump is less likely maybe to set the world on fire than Hillary would have been? Um, you know, that's an interesting point. Uh, he says interesting things about uh, North Korea, as in that's China's problem, and I tend to agree with that. He tends to say that the rest of the world, particularly the rich world, needs to take on or, or foot the bill for more of its defense. I think that is ultimately a peaceful concept. I don't think the world is made more peaceful when the U.S. is its policeman. But you hit on something that's important to me that um, – I'm preaching to the choir and saying it to you. Guys like us love economic growth and free trade simply because we think that is the cheapest and best foreign policy mankind ever conceived. And so when people criticize us for our love of of, of open trade and open markets, they miss why we think it's so important because we love peace more than anyone. Yeah, it's interesting, though, that they also don't see tariffs and trade sanctions as, as acts of war, and they don't see domestic aggression against citizens in the form of what I would argue aggression, in the form of regulations and taxes. They don't see that as, as acts of war um, amongst our friends on the left. Yeah, I love how you put that. I, I think you're so right. Um, and, and again, between what we know is that when people are – when individuals are trading with one another – War becomes very expensive. It becomes costly because they're not serving one another's needs. Um, to bring in someone who's known for being of the left, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy always said to his son John, war's bad for business. And it is. It staggers me that an economics profession, almost to a man and woman, would say that that uh, the World War II ended the Great Depression, that war stimulates the economy. Uh, Mises put that so well in his book, Liberalism, that in fact war is the ultimate depressive concept. And But I, I love how you expand it to beyond the shooting. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, if you recall a few years ago, uh, the earthquakes in Japan – uh, caused Honda dealerships across the United States to be short on both automobiles and parts for about six months. So the idea that we're ever going to have another war with Japan uh, is a non-starter. But, John, I'd love to turn to your article. It was in Real Clear Markets a couple of days called No, Mr. President-elect, the dollar is not too strong. And, and i got to tell you, I love this article because there's even a lot of good folks on the free market side. I might throw out Larry Kudlow, who talks a lot about king dollar. I, explain to us, you know, this fetish this enduring fetish for exports over imports. Why do so many of us believe this? All I can think is that people still believe after all this time that when people are buying from you, you're prosperous. Well, okay, that's true, but really, why do we get up in the morning every day? Why do we work for dollars? We're working for all the things we don't have. Our goal from the day we start working to long after we retire is to import. That's, that is the source of our prosperity, what we can command in return for our toil. Yet somehow economists have turned that on its head and it doesn't surprise me. I think it's a ridiculous profession. Economists believe that imports actually hurt us and exports are what strengthen us. What an odd thing. Well, but you get in, in, in the article, you get into how devaluing the dollar uh, simply devalues the, the power of, of average people's wages. Okay, let me ask you this. You talk about measuring in yardsticks and how these things don't really matter. Would you agree with, when Rothbard says we don't care about the money supply per se? Uh, do you think that's correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, how arrogant for us to presume what the money supply should be. I think Mises put it brilliantly in the theory of money and credit. 
He said, no, and I paraphrase lightly, no nation or individual need ever worry about having too little money. And his point was, if you're productive, if a country's productive or an individual's productive, money supply is always going to find that individual. Beverly Hills and Greenwich and Manhattan never have a money supply problem because there's lots of productive people in those places. And so you never worry about money. What you worry about is this measure, because that's all it is, is it stable? Because how awful if you're working for money, and per Mises once again, you're not working for money, you're working for what money can be exchanged for. How cruel if suddenly that ticket that you're working for is devalued? Because that's the sole reason you're working to get what you don't have to import. If they're devaluing the currency, they're defeating the sole purpose of your work because suddenly the dollars you exchange your toil for buy less. Well, do you think that stability in and of itself is a goal? In other words, if a currency is volatile relative to other currencies or relative to the goods people want to buy, uh, that, that means that uh, workers have a harder time knowing what they're going to be able to afford, and it means business owners have a harder time knowing their, you know, budgeting their future costs. So is a, is a rapidly or widely fluctuating currency, is that a bad thing in and of itself? Of course, it's a bad thing because it deprives money of its sole purpose. Uh, bringing Adam Smith into the conversation, the sole use of money is to circulate consumable goods. I would just add to it the other sole use of money is to facilitate investment. What are investors buying when they commit capital to new ideas? Uh, they're buying dollar or currency income streams in the future. Well, so if the currency is volatile or if it's constantly being devalued, you've reduced a great deal of incentive to uh, commit resources to the future or to delay your consumption of resources. So stability is essential. Um, I'll point out here, my views are evolving. Historically, I've said the best way to do this, markets happened upon gold long ago is a great way to measure the value of a currency. I'm still for a gold standard, given the choice between what we have now, a floating currency and, and gold. I think Mises got this right, too, in the theory of money and credit, that if governments didn't create money, obviously market actors would create money very quickly because it facilitates trade among producers. I'm guessing JP Morgan, Walmart, and Visa would do a much better job of creating stable money that we'd all want to earn and exchange with than does the U.S. Treasury. Well, if stability is good and wild fluctuations are bad, isn't slow erosion bad too? In other words, the Fed's, well, you know, the Fed has an express policy uh, of, you know, about 2% inflation targeting per year. It, isn't that crazy too, if we think about it properly? Oh, it's completely nutty because I don't have to tell you that if your goal is 2% inflation, what you're trying, you're going to do is double the price level or devalue the dollar by name the percentage over 36 years. The only thing I would say about the Fed is the Fed doesn't view inflation in the way that you and I do. Uh, you and I view inflation as a devalue of the unit of account, in our case, the dollar, um, where, it, where it just, it, it is devalued. The Fed views inflation as too much economic growth, which is really strange because if you look throughout global economic history, in, uh, economic growth is the biggest enemy of rising prices mankind has ever known. I cite the uh, original mobile phone was $4,000. The original uh, laser printer was $17,000. Uh, early flat screen TVs cost $25,000 plus. Economic growth pushes down the prices of everything. The Fed thinks in its infinite unwisdom that economic growth drives up prices. It staggers me that people take those people seriously. But even the financial journalism world does. You're, a, you're a, a, an economic and financial journalist. Are you ever shocked at, at what you read about the Fed in mainstream financial publications? Uh, Jeff, I'll one-up you on that. That is the reason I write about this stuff. I used to work on Wall Street. I'd watch CNBC and read the newspapers, and I'd read about how growth causes inflation and all these other nonsensical concepts. And I thought, I've got to get into this because I grew up in the 1970s. I know what inflation is, and economists and journalists who who claim to be experts on this and, and the people who report on these experts do not have a clue about what inflation is. So it made it, it – that's what got me into the field I'm in. <laughs> well, 
We only have time for one more question, so I'll ask you this. Given the current reality and what most people probably believe about trade, about the Fed, about the dollar, et cetera, you know, what are some small things a Trump administration could do either in the Treasury Department or at the Fed itself? We know he's at least spoken to John Allison, the former Cato head, uh, about a position, perhaps vice chair at the Fed. You know, what are what are some realistic things that Trump could do conceivably over the next four years that, w- that would uh, – would make John Tamney happy. Well, uh, this is where people will disagree with me, but I think if you look at history, you don't need a central bank to devalue the currency. Um, we were devaluing the dollar long before we had the Fed. I think the, the dollar is a, is a treasury concept, which means it's a president concept. Presidents get the dollar they want. Reagan and Clinton largely wanted a strong dollar. They got it. Uh, Bush Jr., Carter, Nixon wanted a weak dollar. They got it. What Trump could do is just be quiet and tell his Treasury secretary and those officials to be quiet, to stop complaining about China and the value of its currency. That quietude would signal to the markets that we believe in the importance of a strong dollar. That's that's what I'm that's the most I can hope for. In my perfect world, they legalize private money because I do think just as market forces bring us computers, socks, and shoes of all shapes and sizes, I think market actors would bring us much better, more stable money um, that we would much prefer to earn over what the U.S. Treasury issues. But that's an idealistic dream of mine. Yeah, but I like the idea that you could legalize competing currencies right alongside uh, the, the dollar. Let the Fed keep doing what it's doing. Let the Treasury keep doing what it's doing, but simply allow people to use other forms of payment, both in private business and, and to pay their taxes without putting them in jail for it. Absolutely. Imagine what that would do, that kind of competition. Um, I would be very happily earn a Walmart dollar or a Visa dollar. I think many other others would too. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our guest is John Tamney from Real Clear Markets and also a great writer at Forbes. I really recommend you check him out. He is that rarest of rarities. He is a financial journalist who actually understands economics, and and he brings to mind uh, sort of a modern-day version of Henry Hazlitt in that sense, in that he writes in a very accessible uh, way rather than an academic style. Uh, John, we're so happy that you joined us. We appreciate your time, and ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. So there you heard why Trump's policies on trade and money are likely to do more harm than good, though there is some merit, perhaps, to the foreign policies he espoused during his campaign. Don't go away because after the break, David Stockman will tell us why no matter what Trump's economic policies might be, there is virtually no hope of a restoration of a strong U.S. economy, and that's because Trump is stuck with a $20 trillion debt that is enslaving our nation. It's not a happy story, but a necessary one if you want to understand the direction of our economy. So Stick around after the break to hear David Stockman. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Golden Predator Mining Corp., a well-financed gold exploration company operating in Canada's Yukon. Focused on advancing its Three Aces project, a high-grade gold project located in the southeast Yukon with gold and quartz outcrops at surface. Ongoing work includes trenching, road work, drilling, and bulk sampling. Golden Predator also holds the past-producing Brewery Creek project located near Dawson City, Yukon. Golden Predator, a company working closely with Yukon First Nations. Golden Predator trades on the Canadian venture market as GPY and in the USOTC market as NTGSF. Chilean Metals is a Canadian junior exploration company focusing on high potential copper, gold prospects in Chile and Canada. Chilean Metals Zulima property is a Candelaria-like prospect, one of the largest mines in the world. The company has begun its drill program in Chile on its Zulima property and should be completed by the end of February. 
We also own a 3% royalty on future production on Tech Resources Copa Query property, potentially worth millions of dollars annually. This is the time to invest in Chilean metals, a discovery story with a hedge. Traded TSX Venture under symbol CMX. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. In this segment, David Stockman tells Fox Business News why the equity market's euphoria that followed Trump's victory is ill-conceived and why the $20 trillion federal debt makes any kind of real growth in the United States both mathematically and politically impossible. This is not a happy message, but it is most certainly a true message. Take a listen to David Stockman. Welcome back to Wall Street Week. In the days following Donald Trump's victory, the market's reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. But our next guest seems to think that it won't last. Let's welcome back former budget director under President Ronald Reagan, David Stockman. David, yeah. when you joined us about a month ago, right. you sort of warned viewers to go to cash. You thought the markets would be very volatile. Obviously, we've had this, uh, this, this Trump bump. Right. But you're very concerned now, um, despite what Mario was just talking about, this sort of growth acceleration. Your main concern right now is what's going to happen in terms of the deficit. Yeah, we have to be uh, focused now on the morning after, not the giddiness of the two days after. Two things have happened this week that are just uh, shocking, like political, uh, economic, and uh, uh, financial earth you know, has gone out of its uh, orbit, I think. Now, one was the asteroid that hit Tuesday night. I mean, that hit Washington, D.C., the ruling establishment, like nothing we've ever had, at did least in a hundred years. surprise you? I know you voted for Mr. Yeah. Trump because you said so last Yeah, I was one of the 60 million rubes who said, enough of this, it's got to change in a big way. We want an outsider. Were the, you surprised? Uh, I was uh, hoping in the last week that it would get there. I laid out two days before the election a route to 270. It pretty much happened. What shocked me was Wisconsin. I didn't think that was going to happen. But I think it was uh, kind of a weather vane of what's going on in the country. What I'm saying, though, is... Yeah, let's go back to the deficit. Why, if the growth that is forecast now happens and, and we start to actually pay off the deficit after we grow it, what's wrong with that? Because uh, <laughs> there is $20 trillion ticking time bomb called the debt ceiling right in front of us. Uh, that will happen in March. Uh, the new Trump administration is going to inherit that mess. I call it a stink bomb left uh, from last October when they made that deal, Boehner and uh, Obama, right. uh, for the new president, and it's going to consume the entire first 100 days trying to get that thing through. The Republicans are not going to want to vote for a $20 trillion debt ceiling. He's going to have to go to Democrats. When you go to Democrats, they say no, no on Obamacare. No on some of the big regulations that you want to lift. No on a big tax cut for the wealthy. Uh, we'll argue with you on the tax cut for corporations and how we're going to do it. So my point is the market was giddy on the view that uh, Washington is coming to the rescue with a huge new fiscal stimulus and infrastructure and all that. That is dead wrong. The newsflash is that Washington is out of business. The imperial city is in smoking ruins. It will not function. It will be acrimony, confrontation, brinksmanship. So if you were advising... And, well, if I could just finish, so one, one point, that means we'll hit the next recession 
with nothing to break the fall. The okay, Fed's so outer dry powder in Washington will be everybody, Everybody's feeling pretty good, and I, I think oh, David right. is, is sort of is breaking this down. That's why he's, he's the gloom and doom guy. Yeah, but, but, but Anthony, Anthony even, part of this election... Even the, even the beard looks like he's <laughs> living in the bomb <laughs> Anthony, Anthony, part of this election message was that Mr. Trump, President-elect Trump now, knows how to negotiate and do deals. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't he going to be able to go to the Congress and, 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 and deal in the way well, that hasn't been done? Listen, I'm, I'm optimistic because in the transition meetings that I've been in and, and the conversations mm -hmm. I've had with him post-election, he is really looking to do what's right. He's not really focused on left or right. And I think that's a good philosophy for right now in our country. But my question to you is, what, what would you give him? What kind of advice would you give Mr. Trump? Uh, I, the advice I would give him is that he cannot uh, raise, uh, rebuild defense build a wall, enforce the borders, spend more on veterans, uh, have a massive tax cut, have a huge infrastructure program, and not touch Social Security or Medicare or any of the other entitlements. That is fit Reagan fiscal follies on steroids, and we could do it then because we only had a one trillion national debt. We got a 20 trillion debt now, and we got 10 trillion more built in. In other words, before one Trump program is enacted, there's another 10 trillion of red ink coming from what's already there. Uh, and you, you, you can't add four or five uh, let, let, let's, let's walk away from the deficits for yeah. a second in the budget. Yeah. Is the, the growth projections out there realistic? Will there be the kind of uh, GDP growth with the tax cuts and, and the changes that he's uh, suggesting? That's the skunk in the woodpile. The growth in the baseline is totally unrealistic, the CBO baseline. Uh, it's rosy scenario. So if you did everything Trump wants to do and it works as well as the supply siders say, you'll be lucky to get what's already assumed. That's the point. There's no extra revenue. There's no deficit reduction. If you do everything he wants to do, you have to do that basically to reclaim and here's why the CBO baseline assumes we're going to go for 208 months without a recession has never happened in human history why did you why did you vote for him I voted for him because I'm totally fed up with the Fed. I think the national debt is a ticking time bomb. Uh, I at least think that he's re realistic somewhat about our interventionist war-oriented foreign policy. He was smart enough to say I'll negotiate with Putin and not you know, argue that he's some kind of latter-day Hitler. So there, there were uh, basically items in his uh, David, uh, list. You, ma you, mentioned the, you mentioned the Fed today. You mentioned the Fed last time you were on. Um, whether he keeps Janet Yellen through the, her term, uh, there'll be probably a new head of the Fed. Who should be the head of the Fed? Uh, well, I mean, if you wanted someone who really knows what they're doing, it should be Jim Grant. Jim Grant is a student of central banking from day one, and he understands that we don't need price controls on money and debt in the stock market. We need price discovery. We need to let people, uh, hundreds of oh. uh, millions of people who are out there in the market, determine what the interest rate is, what the money market rate is, and, and so forth. And he's also for a stable, fair currency as well. I mean, yeah. so our, some of our viewers may not know who Jim is, but he's a... The legendary uh, newsletter grant interest rate. Yeah, I mean, he's been studying this for a long time. But the point is, we need to get the Keynesians out of there. I think they made a mistake this week when they said, well, we're going to replace Janet Yellen and Fisher, but we'll let them run their term. A huge mistake. Big, big mistakes will be made in 2017 unless they get those two Keynesian money printers out of there, and they can. All they have to do is say, I have no confidence in, in you. You've made a mess out of this. This bubble is going to crash. Uh, I would uh, like you to do the decent thing and resign. Okay? That's simple. But then that would uh, wake up Wall Street to the fact that the days of the Fed uh, basically uh, keeping you uh, in uh, ever-rising uh, prices are over. Uh, that we're in a totally new ballgame. So the, the thing I want to summarize with is that we're entering a chaotic period of non-governance, of a central bank that can't function anymore, that's out of dry powder. There's nothing to rescue this economy. We're going to have a recession. I follow the IRS, not the BLS. The IRS tells me how much money they're collecting, and it's been flat and actually negative for the last four or five months, even on payroll taxes. And that means the economy is long in the tooth, it's slipping into a recession. When the confrontation over the debt ceiling happens, when the disappointment over no traction on the Trump stimulus happens, we'll be in recession. I will say in six months, 
The deficit will explode to over a trillion dollars annually. They're not going to be in a position to do all these huge things. Now, I don't blame Donald Trump. He is inheriting a mess, a rigged system that is far worse than anything even he imagined. And uh, he was colorful about what he said. All right. Well, I can't leave it on that because there was a great victory, and we did call it here on Wall Street Week last week. So congratulations! Well, congratulations to you. To you. you stood and, there through the whole and, thing, and, and, David, uh, and, and thank you. This. And we're looking forward to getting your help and advice. Uh, so thank you for joining us. So now this week, John Tamney told us why Trump's restrictive trade policies, as well as his lack of understanding of monetary economics, are leading to policies that will do more harm than good. Unfortunately. David Stockman just showed us the mathematical and political reality that means we are facing a major economic and market crisis straight ahead. But there is hope, according to Ronald Sorfoli, especially if you agree with David Stockman and John Tamney. That's because their economic views are based on Austrian economics, and so seeing the major decline in the future means that you can be ready to exit the kind of assets that will crash and enter those that can endure any major downturn. Please stick around to hear how Ronald Storfoli suggests Austrian investors can enjoy the best of both worlds. Make money in up markets, but avoid losing it when the Austrian economic theory inevitably plays out. Stay tuned to listen to Ron's comments right after the break. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Spec Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF respectively. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Our Vista Gold's only asset is the Douay Gold Project, which is located in northern Quebec. The Douay Project currently hosts an NI43101 resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be the largest undeveloped and independent gold project in Quebec. Our Vista has significant upside potential to further grow its resources and is currently undergoing an extensive 2017 drill campaign. Our Vista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA and on the OTCQB under the symbol ARVSF. For more information on Arvista, please visit arvistagold.com. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, you heard uh, David Stockman tell us during the second segment of today's show why the Keynesian debt bubbles that led to the dot-com crash and then the housing crash thereafter 
are about to destroy America's economy for good. And then we heard uh, during the first segment John Tamney tell us why the Trump economic policies, while maybe well-intentioned, are likely to do more harm than good. Both of these views from David Stockman and John Tamney are from an Austrian perspective, and they are exactly the kind of views that oftentimes have caused those of us who are Austrian thinkers to give up a lot of the upside gains in the stock market while we wait for the sky to fall. Well, Ron Storfoli, author of a book called Austrian School for Investors, explains why Austrian investors can enjoy the best of both worlds. There is no reason, according to Ron, why Austrians have to stay out of the market during boom times. On the other hand, given their correct understanding of the market distortions caused by Keynesian economics, Austrians can indeed be ready for the inevitable market collapse caused by Keynesian economics and government and central bank intervention in the economy. Others don't see it. Austrians do. So listen now to why Ronald Storfel believes that we can have the best of both worlds. He explains to Jeff Dice of the Mises Institution in the weekend interview right before the 2016 Christmas season. Have a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to Mises Weekends. I'm very pleased to be joined by an actual Austrian this morning, this afternoon for him, uh, Ronald Peter Storferle. Uh, who works in Liechtenstein, but he's originally from Vienna, and, and he's Austrian. And he is one of the four authors of a fantastic new book entitled Austrian School for Investors, Austrian Investing Between Inflation and Deflation. And this is really quite a remarkable book. It is not your typical investment book. It doesn't talk about particular stocks or bonds or movements in a particular s- segment or industry. This is more of a high-level overview of the Austrian school itself, of money and monetary policy, of business cycles, of some possible scenarios going forward, hyperinflation or deflation. Uh, So it can absolutely help you as an investor, but it's not going to give you a bunch of stock tips or something, a.k.a. James Kramer. So uh, I really recommend this book. Uh, I read it over the weekend, and it's uh, written in a very plain and straightforward style. It's got some great blurbs on the back from Dr. Mark Faber, from Guido Holzman, and I think it would make a great uh, Christmas present. So with that said, uh, Ronnie Storfoli, thank you so much for joining us. Hi Jeff, uh, thanks for inviting me. It's it's a pleasure being on the show. Well, I'm I'm not only from Austria. I was born in Vienna, but also uh, a keen follower of the Austrian school of economics that is not taught at all uh, in Austria anymore. So, together with my my co-authors, we try to bring back the Austrian school to Austria. And as it happens to be, I started investing when I was uh, 14 years old, and since then I'm kind of hooked by financial markets, anticipating the market, understanding the market, Uh, studied uh, economics uh, on the university, didn't learn too much at all, honestly, and then started in a bank as an equity analyst and um, started writing about gold 10 years ago and read a brilliant comment or or quote by a gentleman called Ludwig von Mises. And then it said, as the Austrian economist Mises said, and I said, who's that guy, Ludwig von Mises? Then uh, I ordered like, uh, I think a dozen books on Amazon about the Austrian School of Economics. And that was it. So at some point I became the vegetarian in the butchery in the bank, talking about the gold standard, talking about the Austrian school, about the consequences of inflation. Uh, when you are sitting in a bank as an analyst, it doesn't make you the most uh, loved person. <laughs> and so I decided to get with a couple of partners to set up my own company and create um, what we call Austrian investing. And as we're writing about uh, gold for 10 years where we're implementing our holistic view, it was also quite normal for us to to actually write a book about Austrian investing. And uh, we published it in German first. It was a huge success, really a bestseller in the German-speaking world. We got nominated for the German Book Prize Award. And uh, almost one year ago, we published uh, the English translation of the book, which is also quite a success so far. Well, let's talk about the subtitle, Austrian Investing Between Inflation and Deflation, because one of the big knocks on Austrians is that we're so focused on the bust that we miss out on the boom. Can you comment on that? 
Totally. Um, I think w when you're an Austrian investor, there's plenty of, of opportunities, but also um, some risks and, and threats. And of course, if, you, if you've got this Austrian mindsets, you've got knowledge about the monetary system. So you understand the interplay between inflation and deflation. The Austrian school is not very spread among investors. So you, you definitely have some sort of a, a contrarian edge. You understand interest rate and capital theory, which is uh, extremely important stuff like the Cantillon effect these days, very important also to to kind of understand and forecast uh, politics. So there's 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 plenty of opportunities having this Austrian mindset, but there are also some threats because I think many in our camp are very, very sensitive when it comes to flaws in the capital structure. And this leads to some sort of a, a bearish bias, I would say. And this means that we often miss out investing accordingly in the boom phases because everybody is waiting for the, for the bust that will, of course, sooner or later happen. It also leads to very extreme portfolios. Many people that would adhere to the Austrian School of Economics invest mostly in gold, silver, mining equities and so on. Within such a correction that we're seeing since 2011, of course, that means a huge drawdown to your portfolio. Austrians often become very, very convinced or dogmatic, which makes it not easier as an as an institutional asset manager like we are and perhaps most importantly the austrian school doesn't make any forecasts so followers of the austrian school really were were, were extremely successful in anticipating major moves in the market but they have often been um, way too early so i i clearly want to show and and this is what we're also explaining in our book that when you know the Austrian school, you're not necessarily going to be a successful investor. And I think that's a very, very humble observation. And this is one of the characteristics of the Austrian school that I really like. It's extremely, extremely humble. Well, that's interesting. I had a conversation a year or two ago with uh, Bob Murphy, an economist here in the U.S., and he talked about how understanding economics is necessary to be a successful investor, but it's not sufficient. And I think that's a, a point you're making here. Let me get back to something you said uh, about the investment world and their lack of understanding of monetary policy. It seems that most fund managers and most investment advisors, they're, they're strictly focused on their return net of of taxes and fees. They never seem to, to contemplate their returns net of inflation. Do you think this is true that they simply don't consider inflation uh, and they don't really understand monetary policy? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, um, most asset managers that are working nowadays, they haven't experienced any major inflation in, in, in their professional career. So everybody who has been around in the 1970s, stagflation, of course, has a different view when it comes to real returns. And I think that what we always emphasize is we're not in a, we're not in a cyclical crisis. We're in a systemic crisis. And this crisis probably started in August 1971. Since then, we've got a completely unbacked uh, uh, currency and, and we're seeing massive consequences of that uh, since then. So I think that when it comes to inflation, that's probably one of the most important advantages that you have as an Austrian. Because monetarists, Keynesians, neo-Keynesians, they don't care about our monetary system. For them, it's just, it's, it's basically a given. And we know that this, this Austrian worldview, it leads to systemic analysis and to the awareness that currency systems, they just come and go and can morph into something new over time and that there will sooner or later be a monetary reform that our, our currency system will probably end up in hyperinflation or hyperdeflation. Uh, I think basically every fiat system, um, 
did collapse because of hyperinflation and not of, of hyperdeflation. So I think that's a huge advantage that we're having, understanding monetary history. And I think a good economist should actually shouldn't be an economist. He, he should be well-read in history, in philosophy, in natural sciences, uh, in many different areas. And, and the more specialized people become, the less um, they see the big picture. And this was always a problem that I've had working in a bank. My colleagues, the economist department had extremely sophisticated models. The problem was that in regime change, changes like 2008, they simply didn't work. And, and so for me, the Austrian school gives you really a big advantage in understanding the, the big picture. Ronnie, let's talk some more about this conundrum between inflation and deflation. Obviously, as Austrians, we understand inflation as a monetary phenomenon. So when the economy is bad, central banks attempt to resuscitate things by cranking up the printing presses figuratively and, and easing monetary policy generally. However, when the economy is bad... Businesses, households, individuals tend to deleverage. They tend to shed debt and they tend to spend less, which is, of course, deflationary in its impact. So talk about this tension between inflation and deflation and how we should view this as Austrians and, and potentially as investors. Um, yeah, we... we we coined the term monetary tectonics. We said that this interplay between inflation and deflation, this is like tectonic plates pushing against each other. Above the surface, it, 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 everything might look stable, but below the surface, there's massive uh, pressure coming. So from my point of view, there's quite a lot of deflationary forces. So basically, if there would be uh, an Austrian laissez-faire approach, the crisis would be highly deflationary. So there would be balance sheet deleveraging. There would be a massive recession. And from an Austrian point of view, recession is something normal, something healthy. There would, of course, um, be massive unemployment, but this would also lay the foundation for a more healthy and stable uh, future. Now, the inflationary forces are basically by government and central banks. So zero interest rate policy, communications policy, quantitative easing, operation twist, currency wars, regulatory uh, stuff and like eligibility criteria for collateral and so on. So uh, central bankers and politicians want to avoid deflation, whatever it takes. Um, my friend Jörg-Jüder Hulsmann said in The Ethics of Money Production, from my point of view, one of the best books ever written about those topics, he said, the harmful character of deflation is today one of the sacred dogmas of monetary policy. And uh, the explanation by central bankers and economists is that in deflation, people just stop consuming we all know that this is simply not true. We all know that within our monetary system, we just need a general increase in money supply. We need more and more credit growth. And since 2008, we're seeing that credit growth is actually pretty sluggish, although in the last couple of months, we can see that credit growth in the US was exploding We've got an advisory board where Frank Shostak also contributed to, to Mises Daily, is, is a member of, and his Austrian money supply is is uh, almost exploding in the last couple of weeks. So we are seeing very strong inflationary signs at the moment. And I think according to Rothbard, the first stage is monetary inflation. Then there is asset price inflation, which we had the last couple of years. And the next stage is actually consumer price inflation, what central bankers want to achieve, whatever it costs. So from our point of view, actually stagflation a bit like in the 1970s, might be a scenario that is highly likely going forward. Ronnie, there's a chapter in your book called The Illusion of Prosperity. And so we've been led to believe since 2008, of course, that equity markets were making gains. But I think your argument is that uh, this is not built on any real increases in productivity or new markets or capital expenditures or real earnings. But it's just this sort of uh, monetary alchemy that central banks have propped up equity prices. And that gives us the illusion of prosperity. And it creates uh, what you call a halo effect around certain cheerleaders for the markets. But 
uh, underneath there's no real prosperity. I think this is really a core Austrian criticism of both fiscal and monetary policy, that we are creating a false economy uh, and rather than allowing what you call a, a curative or restorative recession to occur and then building real economic growth uh, on top of that. Absolutely. Um, from my point of view, um, central banks are, are not the solution or the cure. They're the problem and, and they're extremely aggressive measures that they have taken uh, in the last couple of years. They basically bought time. But we should not forget that simply by printing money, uh, you, you cannot create any wealth. Real wealth can only be created by entrepreneurship, by appropriate risk taking, by capital uh, accumulation. So at the moment, we're only distorting the economy's capital structure. And this creates this what we call property, uh, prosperity illusion. There is some nominal quantitative growth, but the dissolution of the economy's long-term foundation, an increasing focus on the short term and a declining quality consciousness can be observed nowadays. So we are consuming capital. And, and I think uh, you can make the comparison with a with a, a beautiful house. I don't know, uh, you probably have been to Vienna. There's um, beautiful buildings that uh, were built in a time when the foundations of the, the Austrian School of Economics were laid by Karl Menger. Beautiful houses, but um, I think we're consuming capital at the moment. So everything on the surface looks still great, but it's like real estate that you don't invests in anymore. So in the first couple of years, it seems everything is fine, but then you can see that the property, the house is just getting worse and worse and you're having leaks and it's just becoming a, a big disaster. So there's still so much capital to consume that it leads to this illusion that everything is fine and everything will get uh, better. But once we arrive at the end uh, of this, um, we'll see that the emperor uh, has no clothes. And, and that will probably be a time when um, people who are familiar with the Austrian school of economics will have a huge advantage to people who think that everything is just, just fine based on their, I would say, mainstream views. Well, ladies and gentlemen, just consider that. Consider the possibility that there has been no real economic growth since the crash of 2008 or 2009, or consider that we're just halfway right, that there's only been half as much growth, uh, real organic growth, as advertised since the 2008-2009 crash. That's a very sobering thought. Uh, again, the book is Austrian School for Investors. We'll link to it. Uh, it was written uh, by four authors, one of which has been our guest today, Ronald Peter Storfeli, uh, who comes to us live from Liechtenstein, uh, but originally uh, from Vienna. I think this book is going to make a great Christmas present for anyone uh, you know who may be playing the stock or, or bond markets. It's really going to change the way you think about your money and investing. But again, as I mentioned earlier, this is not a book that discusses industries or sectors or particular investments. It's not that kind of investment book. It is much more a book about how to think about what governments and central banks are doing and, and what to do accordingly to protect yourself. So, Ronnie, thanks so much for your time. Congratulations on a fantastic book. And we hope to talk to you uh, very soon and have a happy new year. Well, that about does it for this week. I hope you enjoyed and profit from the guests that we've had on today's show as we face some very perilous political and economic times ahead, I'm afraid. Next week, Doug Casey will be with me to discuss the Greater Depression and how the impending depression is likely to be different than the last one. Actually, I think Doug may have a great deal in common with the views of Peter Stoffel. Uh, that should be very valuable, I think, to you. So I hope that you will listen next week to Doug Casey and my other guests. I expect Michael Oliver will be back with me as well. And I should mention also my favorite gold stock, the CEO of that, will be with me as well. And I'm talking about Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources. Well, again, that's all for this week. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. 
Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Golden Predator Mining Corp., a well-financed gold exploration company operating in Canada's Yukon, focused on advancing its Three Aces project, a high-grade gold project located in the southeast Yukon with gold and quartz outcrops at surface. Ongoing work includes trenching, road work, drilling, and bulk sampling. Golden Predator also holds the past-producing Brewery Creek project located near Dawson City, Yukon. Golden Predator, a company working closely with Yukon First Nations. Golden Predator trades on the Canadian venture market as GPY and in the USOTC market as NTGSF. Chilean Metals is a Canadian junior exploration company focusing on high potential copper, gold prospects in Chile and Canada. Chilean Metals Zulima property is a Candelaria-like prospect, one of the largest mines in the world. The company has begun its drill program in Chile on a Zulima property and should be completed by the end of February. We also own a 3% royalty on future production on Tech Resources Copa Query property, potentially worth millions of dollars annually. This is the time to invest in Chilean Metals, a discovery story with a hedge. Traded TSX Venture under symbol CMX. Arvista Gold's only asset is the Douay Gold Project, which is located in northern Quebec. The Douay Project currently hosts an NI43101 resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be the largest undeveloped and independent gold project in Quebec. Arvista has significant upside potential to further grow its resources and is currently undergoing an extensive 2017 drill campaign. Arvista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA and on the OTCQB under the symbol For more information on Arvista, please visit arvistagold.com. 